Guys, welcome to the debrief. David, what did you think of that conversation with Lynn Alden? Yeah, I'm really happy that Lynn Alden is into the concept of the fourth turning uh, because that's not actually something I would expect of somebody who's a macro commentator to speak about social dynamics and how social dynamics play into macro poly, uh, macro uh, the, the macro conversation. Uh, that I'm uh, that is something that my brain has been just like that's where my attention has gone lately. Uh, the the whole political unrest in the United States marked by you know asset price increase, you know wealth inequality, people's people's jobs getting lost to for for whatever reason, while the dollar is getting devalued and they're they're purchasing less and their dollar pays for less healthcare and less daycare and people just get upset and we don't know why yet it's a it's really just a big story about the devaluation of the dollar and uh, global macroeconomics is causing people to be distressed and look at different institutions for health and safety uh, the fact that uh, some macro commentator like like Linalden is tapping into the powers of social dynamics is something that I think is really, really fascinating. It's I kind of went at the at the bleeding edges of conversation these days that I don't think is happening anywhere else. Yeah, I totally agree. Just such a, a holistic understanding of all of these disciplines. And I, I also think that when people hear the term like a, a macro commentator or a macro investor, something to that effect, right? Um, calling Lynn that is selling her short in a big way because um, she's just not somebody that works at kind of a hedge fund and decides like when's a good time to buy commodities versus stocks versus you know one you know currency uh, over another equities that sort of thing she's like putting this whole um, studied framework together about how all of these pieces play together through have throughout history and might play together in, in the future um, almost her her style and the tone of conversation reminds me of like a uh, like a younger version of a Ray Dalio like in the way he thinks about the world through studied history and this idea that the, the, the really important idea is that um, this decade may not play out like the way it, you know, the, the way you think because your recent experience is like the, you know, the 2000s or the 2020s, you need to reach way back across history and see what other cycles have played out in other, in order to be prepared to invest in the, in the 2020s. So just, um, and the other thing, David, is like, you could ask Lynn any question and she, she was prepared to answer and not Off just to answer. The races. Yeah. Just like give like one of the best answers, uh, on that, on that topic <laughs> that you've heard, like, just like immediate, mm-hmm. um, not even a pause. Um, so she, she's, you know, very, very clearly attuned to, to what's going on here. Yeah, and macroeconomics is something that I have a hard time understanding. When I'm listening to a Lynn Alden podcast or a Ray Dalio, you know, podcast, I can understand it in the moment, but then it then it feels like I'm holding water in my hands. Like it's a very complicated subject. What part is what what parts of it are like that for you? Uh, just like imports, exports, deficit, uh, de- devaluation. Yeah. Just like you know, there's so many moving parts that it takes a lot of practice and a lot of very deep knowledge to be able to hold all of those parts simultaneously. And I think the comparison between Lynn Alden and Ray Dalio, I think is really, really apt. And I think Lynn Alden has the benefit of having figured out how crypto plays into the macro conversation much sooner than Ray Dalio. Uh, I think I think she's going to be kind of a rising star that leads, uh, leads the crypto industry and the macro industry together, right? Um, she, well, I think, Go ahead. Like Bitcoiners in the crypto industry certainly like embraced her, right? And what's in, what's interesting here is uh, you say she's embraced crypto earlier, and she then Ray Dalio, she absolutely has. 
right? Um, and yet this, well, 2020, April, 2020, according to her, was the first year that she actually got into crypto. Yeah. So it happened very it, fast. It almost like, and this goes back to, I hope we, we talk a little bit about our conversation with her about ether and Ethereum, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost like, um, she maybe saw some of these forces that she talked about playing out way back in, in 2017. Right. But, um, crypto wasn't ready for her yet. Mm -hmm. Like, like Bitcoin wasn't ready to be, uh, an attractive investment to someone mm -hmm. like her at that moment because of what was going on because of prices. I almost feel like that's, it, it was, it was too early then for mm -hmm. her to style of investing. I almost feel like that's kind of like ether to her now. Like it's just, it's just, too, she made this comment even it's like, it's just too early. I want to see mm -hmm. how ETH2 plays out. I want to see how DeFi plays out. Right. I want to know for sure that there's some substance there. Right. So it, it feels similar. Yeah, she she called Bitcoin still a speculation on a on a future store of value, right? Like even Bitcoin is not like quote unquote there yet. And this is something I've heard on the uh, Nick Carter Matt Walsh podcast as well. Is Bitcoin is not like a global store of value. It's an option play on a future global store of value. And like big macro investors like Lynn Alden don't pay attention to things like less than a trillion dollar market cap. And Bitcoin yeah. actually <laughs> isn't even there yet. Like, and Ethereum's not at what what's Ethereum's market cap? Are we over a hundred billion yet? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hundred, hundred fifty-ish. That's not thinking. that's not the size of investments that big macro players pay attention to. Like macro players are literally macro things that move entire mountains. And you know, a hundred, hundred fifty billion dollar market cap asset is not is not to play in the big macro space. Now yeah. that's kind of like my risk reward tolerance, your risk reward tolerance, and the future of of Ethereum is much more interested in that, but it seems to, to, to Linalden, it just does not yet fit into the macro picture. Um, yeah. Yet, I, I still think there's plenty of cases to, to believe in. And, and that's in her, her belief about the fourth turning and how that fits into the, the picture and how we believe Ethereum offers um, places for the answer to the distrust in society to be fixed because of trustless applications. I think that, I think that stuck with her. I don't, I don't know if she reacted in a way that indicated that that stuck with her. However, I still think that it did. Um, and I think this, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping my bias is that this is like the first kind of time where she like really heard Ethereum from, you know, Ethereum natives like you and me. I don't think yeah. anyone else has a bug in her ear about Ethereum. Well, there was a similar conversation we had with uh, Raul Paul, right? A few months ago. And, um, you know, a few months later, he turned into this major ETH bull, yeah. <laughs> which to our surprise. So maybe something has been planted there. I really like the the way she kind of framed crypto, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, like someone like Lynn is a deep thinker, has like mental models for how all of the pieces, everything that we see from economics to society, to politics, to social movements, all fits together, right? And one of her framings for crypto, which we talked a little bit about in our conversation with, with Vance uh, Spencer a few months ago, David, is um, this is a populist movement, mm -hmm. which is interesting framing, right? Yeah. Like um, we, we've talked about Bankless as being sort of a, a, a social revolution. It's also partially a get back your sovereignty. The institutions mm -hmm. um, have taken something away from you. The institutions will not work in, into the future. So like start trusting uh, code rather than rather than these these big banking uh, institutions. And it's really kind of a, a populist uh, movement in a way. It's a nonviolent populist movement. It's an opt-in hey, populist pause, movement. Just pause, just pause, just okay. pause. Law. I guess it wasn't that. 
No, guess what's in that? <laughs> oh, one variable down. What do you do to, to make it back, to make it work? I just turn it off and on. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah. It's, so, it's so nonviolent is where you cut, cut off. Yeah. So it's a nonviolent populist movement. It's very much, it's very much opt-in, right? Um, what's your take on that framing of it? Yeah. I, I, and I think that is a, another thing that I would imagine I, or I would hope w would resonate with her. And I think the cryptocurrency as a social phenomenon more than a financial or monetary phenomenon is actually a really ah. compelling angle that yeah. I, I think are, is worth experimenting with, with, uh, you know, the populace, right? When, when people get into the world of crypto in the world of, of Bitcoin, the world of ether, they are, they are trying to make investments, right? They come in for the money, the number go up to, to get rich in the next like, couple of years. But I think that, and then there's, you know, different ways to explain these things, like what do these things mean? And I think the social element is actually really, really interesting. Um, people don't like banks. And we also have like the, the bankless brands, like you can actually live a life without banks. And that is a social thing. That is a, a, a an anti-institution pro-individual. And, and I think the characterization of like, almost no institution out there is really helping you out these days. You know, like you, you, no, nothing is helping you and you, unless you are paying for their services, including the government, right? Like think of how many, like how much tooth and nails that we had to, to, to scrape by to get our second uh, stimulus check, or I guess third now, because the second one was only $600. Like no one is out to help you. So you need protocols that um, are designed to be, you know, completely neutral and completely fair. And, and that is a social phenomenon. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think what, what people may find in crypto is that um, while the crypto banks today, right, the, the Coinbase of the world and God bless them, right, they, they, are, they are building up the crypto industry. They, have, they are that essential bridge. We love them. But um, centralization in even that layer, the custodial layer, the crypto banking layer will lead to the same problems that like we already have, right? So there is something to this criticism, I think, David, that hey, like Bitcoin without a DeFi layer is just a new gold standard that will lead to the exact same system that we already had. So you're not, um, you're not new banking class. And that is less interesting, I think, from a, from a populist uh, social movement perspective. You know, another thing stuck out at me when um, she was talking about like US dollars and... Um, uh, the U.S. as a as a reserve currency was like her, um, I, I guess her framing of of that going into the 2020s and how something like we see the election of Biden, of course, and he's talking about um, like with a with a Democratic uh, with Democrat uh, run Senate, how he's essentially going to provide checks, right? So that two thousand dollar check to all American citizens. You know, it's just deferred until essentially the Biden administration. So, so how things like universal basic income essentially will provide a fuel to accelerate the currency devaluation of the U.S. dollar that she seems. Have you have you thought about it in those terms before? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and you you've talked about how like when people get two thousand dollars in the mail, just insta, insta deposited to you, that that kind of like gets people to wake up about what the hell this money thing is. Yeah. Um, I think that's fuel to the fire as well. Um, and at, at the same time, like that that's one of the many catalysts where people are like, you know, 
the world that I expected, you know, to have happen to me in the 19, in the, in the 2020s is actually not the world that I see happening. Like things are happening differently. Like the, you know, things are not quote unquote going according to plan. And when things don't go according to plan, uh, people are ready to adopt new plans. And um, like we've been saying, like 2020 shattered everyone's expectations and therefore like almost all bets are off. Uh, when, I, when I was talking to uh, my mom about our episode with Balaji, <laughs> I, I uh, started the line saying, you know, "Does she listen? Did she listen to uh, some of them? She did not listen to that one. She did listen. But she to does. Some, she listens to some of the bankless stuff that uh, that, we, nice. that we put out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I say, like, hey, mom, like, I just recorded a podcast with a guy that is trying to start a literal country, and she goes, <laughs> you know what? That's just not the craziest thing I've heard this this year, right? Like, <laughs> That is a run of the mill at this point. And I think that's the, the yeah. like the man behind the, the curtain is getting pulled back, right? Like people are understanding that money is weird. Uh, and at the end of the day, like uh, both the Black Lives Matter riots and the, the pro-Trump riots are economic riots. That's what we share. That's what the left and right shares the most. Is yeah. Both disgruntled about our economic situation and we're figuring out ways or, or rationalizing our reasons to take to the streets. And we're not going to solve that problem until we solve the, the economy. And that's, I don't know how we're going to solve the economy. It's not my job. My job is to help promote crypto, which I think is an alternative uh, economy. <laughs> yeah, we, like there's an element of like, we're all angry and, uh, and we don't know why. And you know what that makes me, makes me think of is like, um, so Lynn, I think had some insight into like, the great thing about macro is you could sort of use it to plan, like not, not just plan your portfolio and your assets and your wealth, but also just like, you know, plan your future. Um, what are the next 10 years going to, to be like? And one thing that's top of mind for me is right. We, we talk about crypto and we think we're in this, this bull market. Right. And the, the advice is, okay, well, once Bitcoin and Ether get to a certain price, like exit, you know, exit. You know, and whether someone chooses to exit all of it or exit a portion, right? Like you want to kind of sell at the top of the cycles, right? But the, the question for me, if you if you zoom out and take the longer term, like the longer, the, the larger view of the next 10 years, exit to what? Like exit to what? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's an element of, okay, you, you exit in order to buy crypto lower for the next cycle. Right. But do you exit to something safe? What is right. safe? Right. Is dollars in a bank account safe? Are T-bills actually safe? Well, mm -hmm. in the 1940s, Lynn says, they lost 70% of their value over a 10-year period of time. We're supposed to be getting a yield. Right. And like You get nominal value, but you don't get actual value. So like, exit to what? Mm -hmm. And then you start to be like a, a super bullish Eric Voorhees style of holder where you're like, Oh, okay. Well, this is a hold for life type of right. type of position, or at least for decades, right? Yeah, where Eric Voorhees says, "Yeah, short four years. That's short, right?" Um, I, I do think that this yeah. cycle, <laughs> this cycle is going into um, you know 2021, 2022. this is the last big cycle before literally everyone knows what Bitcoin and Ethereum are. Like no one is going to be left out of, of this cycle, at least by understanding what Bitcoin is. They they will be able to articulate why people want Bitcoin. They will be able to articulate the reasons. And at that point, you know, this has to be the last major cycle before things start to smooth out, right? Before that, that bear market actually just turns into a dip buying opportunity. And I, I quote, I, um, uh, when we got off the uh, the air with with Lynn, I talked about how she was on um, CK's podcast, my POV crypto podcast host. Uh, and he just did a, a podcast that he said he was a really big fan of that I haven't listened to yet. 
called the the hardest trade is is the title of the podcast where like you know when you exit bitcoin at the quote unquote top of the market or you exit ether at the top of the market it's actually unknown what you step yourself into ryan when you and i were making our 2021 predictions about the size of the of the coinbase ipo we were trying to speculate like is it going to be 80 billion 100 billion 150 billion and like to some degree the answer that we were trying to come to, we got, we ran into a big unknown is we don't know what the value of the US dollar is going to be. And right. yet that's just Coinbase is going to IPO probably within 12 months. And so like the, the, the long-term time horizon for understanding what the dollar is as an asset to you as a, as a, as a rational economic actor, that's an unknown uh, for, for as short as a time span as a year. We don't know what the dollar is going to be like in just 12 months. That's crazy to think about. Yeah, it is. And it, it kind of begs the question of like, what are, you, what are you exiting into, right? So when you exit crypto, are you exiting into dollars, into, into bonds? Are you exiting into real estate? Or, or, or switch it the other way around. When you sell uh, stocks and choose to park more of your assets in crypto and you choose to sell US dollars, well, you're, you're kind of exiting those positions and into, into crypto. Right. Um, so like, what do you, what do you choose to exit in is, is kind of a, a question of like, once you have enough money for your daily needs, right. And you have maybe a little bit of, um, like emergency fund access in case something bad happens, then the rest of your funds are really in this, this larger class, uh, store of value. And the question is like, where over the decade long time horizons, do you park that store of value? And if everything that Lynn is saying is is true, mm-hmm. that um, you know we we could see um, inflation this cycle, a currency devaluation, as she as she put it, well, do I really want to keep um, my right. store of value denominated in dollars? Maybe mm-hmm. I want to denominate it in ether. Maybe I want to denominate it in Bitcoin. And to be clear, guys, I'm not saying like. Um, like go all in, like, you know, cash is not totally trash. Cash is not totally trash. Absolutely. Right. Like I, you know, all of my daily living bills, it's all, you know, us dollar denominated, of course. Um, but there is an element of, of truth there of like, what are you choosing to exit to particularly your store value wealth? The lack of foundation because of the instability of the dollar or lack of future assurances of the dollar, I think can extend pretty far. Um, and I think that the fact that the dollar is not acting as good foundation is kind of like the substrate behind so many of the, the social issues that we've been talking about, right? If the dollar had a better stable, uh, had a better stable foundation, perhaps things would be better off. And that's why Bitcoiners talk about how awesome Bitcoin is because of how strong assurances that it gives you, according to them, uh, is the hard cap, right? And the hard cap and the promise of the hard cap is one of the greatest foundations of all time. Um, and I think that is um, a reflection of kind of what we're talking about with these trustless institutions, these institutions that are operate on code and are promised to always operate on code in the way that they've always operated. Um, that's a new level of foundation uh, a new uh, structure that humans can depend on that are that is um, promised to be more resilient than any other structure that we've ever created ever. Um, yeah. That's what gets me excited about the future. It's so interesting how the central banks have basically um, made it impossible just to hold dollars these days, right? Like, like um, you essentially, if you if you have 
any form of wealth, you have to put it in some sort of an asset. You have to put it in equities. You have to put it in property. You have to put it in, in crypto because if you just hold dollars, it, it gets completely eroded away, at least especially relative to those other assets. So uh, I often feel like we, we see all of the kind of the protest and the, and the social unrest. How much more angry would people be if they knew that the system was actively screwing them right. and was like, if you, you, you have to hold capital or else you're screwed. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like playing some game of monopoly and like some of the players are, are the bankers and they can just like, mm -hmm. when they pass go, they collect $2,000 and you only get $200, right? right? Mm -hmm. Like the game is completely rigged against you if you don't hold assets. And I wonder if the, if the general population understood this, I feel like um, there wouldn't be less riots. There, there'd be more. Like people mm -hmm. would be super angry about this, right? Mm -hmm. If they knew what was going, right. if, they, if they knew what was going on, if they knew how to kind of channel their anger into the existing systems that we have. You know, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's, I, that's at least where my focus is at. And I'm excited to get more content around that subject matter into uh, the listeners of Bankless Members. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Thanks for listening. This has been an episode debrief with Ryan and David. Cheers.